Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just wanted to say, if you like what we're doing, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you subscribe, you'll get access to exclusives, including guests, and we'll be polling patrons and generally soliciting you for ways to improve the pod. So if you get a chance, please subscribe and help Podside Picnic do more and better work. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, this is Connor, and I'm back with Podside Picnic. I'm here with Pete, and today we're going to talk about Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke. So I'm going to kick you over to Pete, who's going to give you a little background on what this book's all about. Okay, thanks, Connor. Let's see. If we're talking about Rendezvous with Rama, what we're basically talking about is a movie that you've seen again and again and again. It's basically this story has become a science fiction trope, and that trope is a large artifact shows up at or near the solar system, and we, using what technology we have, go to it, break in, and try and figure out what the hell's going on. So, and I mean, and that's that's something you've seen again. Uh, oh, it was it was the theme of Life Force. It was, I think it was Event Horizon 2. Like, there's a lot of movies that have taken this idea. So you you would recognize it on that level, even if you hadn't read the book. Yeah, it's it's kind of a mysterious extraterrestrial visitor narrative. Right off the bat, even before I ask you a question, I want to note that I was just refreshing my memory about when this book came out. And I had it in my head as like 1955 because it feels so like old school Cold Warrior sort of peak atomic age. But it actually came out in 1973, mm-hmm. at which point it might it might have already seemed nostalgic if you're getting towards the end of the Vietnam War for reasons that we will uh, cover here. But my first question for Pete is, so we're right now this with this book, we're smack dab in the middle of the so-called golden age of hard sci-fi. We're talking masculine, we're talking empire, we're talking, you know, hard science. And the big three of this era, according to Pete, are Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, and this guy, Arthur C. Clarke. So why is this dude considered part of that movement and why is he so big within it? Okay, it's a great question and it's a particularly hard question for me because he's he's not my favorite author. He's certainly not my favorite science fiction author, but he is like when you talk about major science fiction authors, Arthur C. Clarke is going to come up again and again and again. And my theory on this is this guy like rolled down the hill in a barrel and landed on greatness. Every book he wrote coincided with the general interests of the public at the time. So he would write books with a a strong paranormal streak like Childhood's End, and he would do it just at the time when people were really connecting with that stuff. But uh, the thing that really made him uh, one one of the great ones on the throne is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Because for... Oh my God! Since 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 film began, people were saying, "Well, you can't really make a good science fiction film. A science fiction film is never going to hit the level of name any what movie you want. Uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, 
Ron, like whatever. They said they said you can't have a good science fiction film because science fiction films are basically monster movies and it's never going to happen. But 2001, the combination of Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick actually made a movie of quality, actually a movie of extremely high quality. I'm not a Clark fan, but I've got to admit it was a pretty great movie. And that, more than anything, in 1968, that's what cemented him as one of the great writers of the Golden Age. And it's sort of interesting because that happened after the Golden Age, really, because that's when our our, uh, our buddies from the New Wave started to come up. People like, oh, I don't know, Ursula Le Guin. Yeah, I think uh, Left Hand of Darkness, which we'll be getting to, came out in 69. So he was already on the tail end there. Yeah, yeah. It's like all of this stuff is like he he was trumpeting all of this Cold War gibberish, like at the same time when the major rebellion against that whole viewpoint in science fiction was happening. But I mean, it was still uh, he was in the right place at the right time to make him make him one of the greats, even even though like writing history was going against him. Uh, so you're telling me I, I have to I have to interrupt and say I, I actually didn't I, I guess I'd failed to internalize, despite reading a little bit about this guy, that this dope of all people wrote <laughs> wrote two thousand one A Space Odyssey. I find that so hard to believe based on this particular book we're discussing. Um oh. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's the same guy. Um, he wrote he pro- he wrote a uh, a short story which you might have been forced to read at one point called the Nine Million Names of God, which is basically like it was held up as one of the great short stories of science fiction, and it is a below average Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> I mean, it's just ugh. And, and, I can only imagine what Kubrick and others must have done to his script because we're going to get to why it seems improbable that Arthur C. Clarke could be involved in a really masterful, masterful story of any kind. Yeah. That's <laughs> okay, well, I think it's time to turn this around at you. So what's it like to read this sort of revanchist um, rise of the guys in, in suits and ties for the first time in the present day. Well, first of all, like I said, I thought it was 20 years older than it is. Uh, and I'm going to explain why, but probably the best way to start doing that is just to say, I'm going to read from chapter 11. Uh, and the chapter is called Men, Women, and Monkeys. And it opens like this. Some women, Commander Norton had decided long ago, should not be allowed aboard ship. Weightlessness did things to their breasts that were too damn distracting. It was bad enough when they were motionless, but when they started to move and sympathetic vibrations set in, it was more than any warm-blooded male should be asked to take. He was quite sure that at least one serious space accident had been caused by acute crew distraction after the transit of an unholstered lady officer through the control cabin. An unholstered lady officer. Wow. (laughs) Wow. That's... That's an amazing paragraph to read in 2019. Um, And of course, it's low-hanging fruit. So if you pick up any old novel and you're out to cancel it, you can always find something ridiculous. Although that is pretty over the top, I have to say. Oh, Um, And and we both know why this is just like the basest pandering you can imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, Clark, 
I assume was, you know, he's writing for the, the most mass possible audience. He's a self-consciously pulp writer. He's probably writing for like 12, 13, 14 year old boys, very self-consciously. So there's a lot of reasons um, for doing this kind of thing, I'm sure. Yep. I think the interesting thing is I really thought he was from the 50s. And part of that is what he reminds me of most as a non-sci-fi reader mm-hmm. are um, these like British gentlemen. And he was British. These British gentlemen, cold warriors who actually had served in the intelligence or in the military, like uh, Ian Fleming from the James Bond novels, uh, or Frederick Forsyth, who wrote Day of the Jackal and some other adventure novels like that. There's there's a very similar kind of swagger, a similar deference to to patriarchy and all these existing institutions, a similar confidence that you know sort of current imperialism is good, should be preserved, and should be forwarded into the future. Um, to give people some background here, there's, you know, pretty standard for sort of distant future sci-fi novels. There's sort of, you know, a interplanetary human alliance that functions fairly well. It ruptures a little bit over the course of the story because they have a space visitor and that always messes with politics. But, um, you know, this is very much like, what if we took Anglo-American imperialism? And again, it's always interesting to me when you have a Brit after World War II thinking like, oh, well, you know, we'll just sort of forward our model by fusing it with the American model and into the future, we'll defeat communism and then, uh, you know, things will just keep getting more more manly and more, I, I don't know, scientific, whatever whatever this is supposed to be. By the way, important to note, Rendezvous with Rama was co-written with uh, a real scientist. Um, I forget exactly what the guy's field was, but, like, there's a lot of hard science in this book about, like, the exact physics of this sort of rotating object deep in space and how you'd have to navigate it if you entered it and all that stuff, which is kind of neat. Um, if you, if you're, you know, curious about that kind of thing, they really thought it through. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is it like to read it? Yeah. It, it just takes me <laughs> back to this, this, this immediate post-World War II moment, which would have already seemed to Clark's readers in 73, he's targeting readers. If he's targeting adults at all, which he probably mostly isn't, honestly, but the extent that he is, uh, 1973, if you're an American, you've just gone through Vietnam and you're, e- you're probably either eager to either, uh, you know, have some reactionary bluster about it and like double down on imperialism, or you're thinking, wow, that was, that was bad. Uh, and, you know, Clark is perhaps trying to inject a note of optimism about where this sort of Anglo-American imperial project can go. And it already feels outdated, I'm assuming, when he was writing it. Um, you know, he was kind of a relic. He was definitely sort of an adventuring, you know, British boarding school guy. Um, oh, he was certainly in his 50s or 60s when this came out. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm going to let Pete talk more about Clark, but he spent most of his life uh, in Sri Lanka because he liked to scuba dive. So he's living out his dream of, like, I'm just going to move to some former part of the British Empire in the Commonwealth and scuba dive all day. So, you know all right, kind of boyhood. He's kind of a boyhood fantasy fulfillment kind of guy in a lot of ways. Um, you've mentioned that Clark had a weird relationship with religion. He was very into the paranormal, mm-hmm. which seems kind of interesting as a contrast with his hard science bent. So tell us a little bit about all that. The, the thing about Clark is that every time somebody asked him a question, he gave a different answer. So he was, he was notorious. He would say things like, uh, well, I don't believe in religion. The, the worst thing to happen to humanity was religion. And, and at the end of the day, uh, I've rejected religion and I've gone with Buddhism. And it's like, 
<laughs> Clarky baby, um, that's a religion. But I mean, his take was that that he tried to distinguish between ancient traditions that tried to teach a code of behavior and the idea of a being in the sky. And so, he a lot of his books, what they tried to do was to interpret, like why would like play games with religion basically like childhood's end is a um well it doesn't spoil anything because it comes up very early in the novel there's a there's a race of beings that goes around from um from uh intelligent species to intelligent species to get them ready for a sort of a a a stage of evolution that happens with every wise race and these this these aliens that go around and do this look exactly like satan horns tails <laughs> wings the whole nine yards and right. the nine billion names of god is a short story specifically about how the world will end if you can, if you manage to write down all of the names of God in this particular language. Like he, he goes back to this well again and again and again. And it's really weird because he is, he's a genuine hard science writer. Like, uh, you know, the idea of geosynchronous satellites being used to, for communications. That yeah. was, that was his idea. Like he was oh, the wow. first person to come up with that. And, um, Everybody in science fiction and a lot of people outside of science fiction have heard of Clark's Law. The idea is that any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Hmm. I didn't know that was him either. I'm learning all kinds of stuff oh, here. Well, I mean, it's, it's a great gimmick when you're trying to interact with, if you're trying to write about Americans going to uh, a distant planet and they pull their flashlights out, well, of course the natives are going to kneel because you've got light in your hand. Like, that's kind of the stuff he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, and of course that's a great synthesis of his weird beliefs. And it, it seems like he's a guy who's, he's just, it, it, the storytelling, I would say here, just thinking about the way he tells stories, you, you mentioned like the using the Satan iconography. Mm -hmm. We talked about sort of the, cheap exploitative misogyny in some of the writing um and all of these things they're certainly very lazy and you can sort of tease out where they come from but i think that, that the obvious thing to me is that this is a guy who just goes for whatever low-hanging gratuitous storytelling fruit he needs to put into a story so he can write about the science so he can think through the science that he's really interested in yes um and that you know i mean that's this is this is what science fiction probably was known for to a much greater extent uh, when he was writing this 45 years ago. Um, and now we tend to think of sci-fi as sort of the sophisticated speculative fiction that's invading the, the mainstream of the culture. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, before it was adventure stories for, you know, adolescent boys that had some science in it. And this is like a perfect crystalline example of that. Um, well, can I and, say so, something about that? Yeah. The adventure sucks. Like, that's it the does. weirdest thing about this, <laughs> is that, yeah, it's the hard science, it's the looking for the future, but the adventure isn't very interesting. The other thing that draws you in with this sort of thing is the futurism, and who wants to live in this future? Like, oh my god, it's like, don't forget to take your food pill. It's the most boring vision of what things are like in 100 years imaginable. 
Yeah, his attempts to color this reality are like, he does a minimal amount of thinking through like, what does it mean for people to live on different planets? Like, how are people on Mercury different from people elsewhere? They get radiated too much, it makes them weird. Uh, right. Or or my personal favorite, to expand, expand on the misogyny a little bit, polygamy is okay in this world, especially if you're an adventuring space captain because you're just away from home a lot and it's okay to have different wives on different systems or whatever it is they're doing. And like the, the captain, <laughs> Commander Commander Norton, who's the you know the theoretical protagonist of this story, where the characters are like sort of less than one dimensional, like half dimensional. He he has a couple different wives, and um, you know, there's like these hilarious moments that are trying to give him depth, I guess, where it's like talking about he's a little you know his his two wives have never spoken, and he's kind of worried that if something happens to him in this expedition, they'll have to talk for the first time or whatever. It's just like oh man. All of it is just so easy to make fun of. We could we could easily spend an hour just making fun of this book, which would not be really worth your time. But the point is, like his his attempts to to add depth to this world and the world building are all extremely weak and superficial. Uh, but he did. He and his writing partner gave a lot of thought to the physics of this rotating alien cylinder world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, so if you're into thought, that, he thought that's ahead. what was important about the novel. Right. Yeah. And and I think part of part of what is so interesting is, you know, your audience well enough to say, you know, they don't really need me to fill in all the blanks here. I just need to give them some like sort of very obvious tidbits that are like, oh, this is different. It's the future. But it's like, you know, it's a boyhood fantasy of the future, sort of a lot of bureaucracy, to be fair. But and then, you know, that 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 uh, to sort of understand I, I do I do have a certain kind of respect for not not getting too big for your britches as a as a hard sci-fi writer here. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think, oh boy, the world would probably be a better place, honestly, <laughs> if a lot of genre writers or pulpier writers today, however we define them, uh, pick their spots better. And if we weren't being told that an incredibly formulaic, you know, Netflix show or whatever was somehow deep just because it goes for sort of like, the cheapest zeitgeisty melodrama and therefore it's it's you know somehow less pulpy than Arthur C. Clarke. It is not, right? Clarke understood yeah. that. This is an era this is an era where those divisions were a little bit clearer in the minds of the broader culture. And uh yeah, that's the nicest thing I could say about him in some ways. Um Well, I'd like to I'd like to go back to something I was talking about before if that's okay. Like when we're talking yeah. When we were talking about his relationship with religion, like I want you to think about the aliens in 2001 that you never really see. And I want you to think about the aliens that must have built this vast ship in Rendezvous with Rama. Like what they both have in common is that they make us look like apes. And he's going back to the religion well again. And it's so weird because everything else going on here is Space Cadet Boy's Adventure. But fundamentally, it's Space Cadet Boy's Adventure meets God. And look like that, like if he would sell it like that, it would be one of the most interesting things that ever happened in science fiction. But I don't think he realizes that's what he's doing. Yeah, so I probably gave him a little bit more credit for being self-aware in certain ways than, than he probably was. I tend to be generous. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to be generous here because this is, again, an easy book to trash, and that would be very fun. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, 
go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just saying there. There's a one of the things I'm learning over the course of this podcast is you appear to be a much nicer person to authors than I am, which I I I give you credit for. Well, I mean, I guess I've faded every podcast to talk about my own book project at some point, and this is a good opportunity for me to say, like, honestly, before I started in earnest on writing a novel that I'm, you know, tinkering with uh, and getting out there in the world, like. I was, I was, for most of my life, much more disdainful of writers and their decision-making. Um, and now I, for reasons that we'll probably get into some other time at a deeper level, like I am, I'm trying to be much more understanding of how hard assembling all the different parts of a novel, many of which are close to invisible, I think, for a lot of more casual readers, but take a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, I was telling someone the other night, um, I, I think for a lot of my life, even though I'd been around people who, you know, were pretty successful novelists, I, I sort of thought that the key to being a writer was to be the best possible Eloy. Like that was the, that, that how well can you frolic on the sunny surface and do the fancy, you know, how witty are you? How good's your wordplay? How imaginative, you know, how, how, how much verb does your imagination have uh, was what really mattered. And I think what I've learned is in any kind of ambitious storytelling, 80% of it is sort of dark, dirty, Morlock machinery. Uh, I am so proud of you for pulling out that reference on a science fiction podcast. Well (laughs) done. And, you know, we should, at some point, we should talk about H.G. Wells, because uh, do you know about the action that guy got? I do not, but I'm excited to get to that at some point. We definitely need to read it. I agree. He he was he was the king satyr of the first thirty years of of the last century. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Wow. Okay. But okay. Well, <laughs> uh, I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> um, what were we saying about? Oh, I, so you, you said like the boy. I want to go back to what you said about boyhood fantasy meets the gods, which is that that got me thinking about. You know, Clark. This is Clark is in some ways. Uh, he was the last, probably the last generation or probably beyond the last generation, but like him to be a Brit who made a bunch of money, like, uh, writing science fiction and writing movies. And I think he was also a TV presenter, wasn't he for a while? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can't remember the exact name, but it's like Arthur C. Clarke encounters the weird and paranormal. Like he did a, he did at least three shows like that. Yeah. So, all right. So he was a, a personality, you know, he got to live, he's an upper class Brit who did all of that. And got to live out his fantasy of living in Sri Lanka and, you know, scuba diving all day. Do you know about the undersea temple? I do not. He discovered an undersea temple. Like, he was was, uh, scuba diving in Sri Lanka and encountered... Like uh, like carved stonework underwater, and people figured out it was this vast temple that had sunk underwater, and it's now like it, it became the most popular place to scuba dive in Sri Lanka because of this crazy edifice that was underwater. That is wild, and again, that's like for guys writing, you know, stories about exploring the universe in outlandish ways. He, he led a, a charmed life in some of those ways where. Again, this is a guy who had lived a long life and was living out these boyish fantasies, and it, it all seemed possible. He was at, he was pushing you know pushing beyond Vietnam, pushing beyond the collapse of the British Empire, and saying, well, all of these sort of like you know high Victorian fantasies of sort of benign mastery of everything, 
mm-hmm. for me as a white dude. <laughs> no, it's all it's all still possible. We can we can come up with a benign narrative for it. We just have to think about space. We have to be imaginative, or we have to go find the undersea temple, like you just said. And yeah. it's like he was keeping alive the dream. You know, uh, you know, the dream of the '90s is alive. The dream of the 1990s is alive in Portland. The dream of the 1890s is alive in Arthur C. Clarke, right? Right. Um, it's like the the <laughs> collapse of everything I believe in in the spectacular way. It's just a blip, folks. It's all gonna come back. It's just a blip. And once we get deep enough into space exploration, it's gonna be a bunch of very competent, you know, Anglo Americans who have multiple wives. And <laughs> uh, and like, there's also a great like if you're if you're familiar with sort of British boarding school fiction or British university stories. There's a, a particularly a pretty funny moment where one way that they explore the cylinder of Rama is there's this young this young lad who's smuggled aboard his like uh sort of air space racing bicycle. I guess it's like a winged bicycle basically that they race with. And he smuggled it illicitly on board the ship. So they have him like fly down the middle of Rama to get to places they can't get to. And it's just like this is like chariots of fire taken to like space exploration and all this just again this is like this is high victorian a hundred years later um so there is a there is a kind of charm to it if you're into that sort of thing but uh gosh to 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 imagine what you're pushing past at that point you're you're writing this sort of towards the end of the vietnam war is i mean you have to be in some kind of fantasy land right um okay so you have been you've been struggling to get an opportunity to be kind to him and talk about the good qualities of his writing and i think we should talk about that now like we've made fun of this book to a great extent but what do you like about it what do you walk away with and say okay that that was solid well hmm i I think that the main thing is just the narrative device of the 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 fact that that he was able that he's bold enough to do a story uh a complete novel where you're not revealing the extraterrestrial beings that built this thing. You're not revealing their purpose. And that it really does have a really detailed, it's not just about the hard science, there's also a very detailed sort of anthropological examination of this world, you know, floating in different gravity conditions and really reasoning through what little they have to go on. Um, it's really handled very nicely. It's really like the world's largest MacGuffin. I mean, you get to the end and you still don't know for sure what this thing is. Right, you still don't know what, what, exactly what happened. Uh, you know, none of, the, none of the drama is supplied by combat per se. Although, to give away a little bit, one of the one of the planets in this interplanetary alliance does try to launch a weapon towards Rama. Um, you know, because they're of course worried about what it's going to do. But, yeah. I mean, hmm. yeah, no, I, I thought that he, I thought that he, re- I, I do think that if you accept, let's put it this way, if you accept the premise of this sort of idealized Anglo-American imperialism through space that that Clark wants to forward. If you accept the you know somewhat ridiculous and insulting premise that we're going to be that we're going to be this misogynist in far into the future and it's a good thing and it's fine. Uh, if you accept all of those premises and then say, all right, if these people came into contact with this kind of world, you know, are they is this how they'd go through it? And I thought that like he's in that he's inhabiting that mindset fully, and he was selling me on sort of their detailed exploration. Um, there's sort of imperial scientific exploration of this, uh, of this world. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean that, that worked like you can make fun of a lot of the sort of human elements of the storytelling, but, you know, thinking through the, thinking through the concept, you know, I, again, we're going to talk a lot about how sci-fi of course stands and stands or falls on how much can you extrapolate, uh, from your sort of your core concepts. And right. 
In this case, the, the challenge is you have to accept all of the dumb stuff floating around. It's, it's, hard, it's easy to make fun of. Uh, and if you do that, then okay, you're along for the ride. I think you. I think that it's never going to work if you don't just. I, I think it's probably this book is probably experienced best if you read his Wikipedia page. You're like, oh, okay, this was the last British Empire gentleman, uh, right? And that's what I'm reading. And if you can accept that, then you might enjoy this. If not, you're just going to want to cancel it, and you would be <laughs> justified in doing so. So you know, yeah. that's my so- thinking about it. If you look at, like, uh, earlier we talked about the, the big three from the Golden Age, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, and Clark, they are actually a continuum. So, like, Isaac Asimov is, like, one way to interpret his the thrust of his stuff is um, in, empire is fundamentally inevitable, but violence is the act of very stupid men. And... Arthur C. Clarke was in the middle saying, uh, empire is inevitable and I'm not really going to focus on the violence. I'm going to focus on the other stuff. And Heinlein Heinlein was like, empire is inevitable and let's get together and kill God. Like, I mean, mean, and and that was your range. I mean, like all of them wanted sort of this universalized Western, and I do mean Western, universe. But yeah, the, the only yeah. difference between them was how aggressive they wanted wanted to be when it happened, and uh, it, Clark didn't seem to care. Like it, it didn't. Like he was certainly he was willing to discuss violence, but it didn't really have any draw or interest for him, and he wasn't repelled by it either. So it just never really landed in his stories in a way that was interesting. Well, I think one thing you said when we were like talking before recording this was. You know, this is a guy just assuming that eventually as, you know, he's taking what for him is an optimistic view of history, to be clear. And he's saying as history progresses and things just keep getting better, then basically dudes like me are going to continue to win. We'll be so much winning that you're going to be sick of us winning. And uh, (laughs) we're going to be in the driver's seat even more, right? It's like even more than in the past. People like me are going to be running the show and that's going to be great. And therefore, there's not going to be as much friction about it. And in fact, you know, there's going to be some little friction that it's a big deal when one of the planets goes rogue and dares to, you know, show some military opposition to this strange alien craft or world or whatever it is. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think this is he, this is an optimistic dude, uh, fundamentally, within within what we consider a easy-to-critique frame. Uh, that's probably the, the, the simplest way to describe what Clark is doing. Um, yeah. Um, whew. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I guess I have one last question for you. All right. Um, you've read – how much Clark have you read, first of all? Um, I've, I've read – well, okay, this is going to sound incredibly snotty, and I apologize. But I've read everything of note, which is about five books. <laughs> okay. Uh, are there any of the, those that you like more or would recommend more than this one in case people are curious? Uh, well, 2001, A Space Odyssey is probably a better book. It's it's a little bit more religious, but what the heck? And the other thing is nine the nine billion names of God is like twenty pages long. So I mean it's a it's a much smaller pill to swallow if you just want to see what he's like. Okay, so two thousand one Space Odyssey is probably a better pick. I think we ended up doing this one uh, because it's so. I mean, 
it, it is it is in some ways a hilarious little book. It's I, I don't want to say that it's no fun. Oh, <laughs> well, but, the thing yeah. is, when I first picked it up, I loved it. I mean, like it's a, it's for its time, it was such a weird inside out concept. Like going and and having this this artifact show up in the solar system and how you interact with this stuff like that's cool it's just the story's not told well like he, he's no so... it's yeah yeah so i, I mean I, sorry go ahead i i i don't know where i'm going i'm just kind of disappointed i want to lecture him <laughs> do better arthur <laughs> uh in like in like a really harsh like boarding school matron voice oh uh, wow <laughs> get the wooden pedal out <laughs> Um, so actually to wrap that up, how old were you when you first read this? Oh my gosh. Um, I think I was 23, something like that. Oh, so you weren't a child. No, no. Yeah. I was, (laughs) I mean, I was, I could vote. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Actually, I think my brother recommended it for me. And quite honestly, like, uh, a, I I'm willing to give a lot of benefit to the doubt to anything my brother hands me. So it, it like it took me a while to get over that, and like the science was impressive enough compared to other science fiction authors that I was I was willing to overlook a lot of other things. Yeah, well, I mean, whew. it's funny. <laughs> I I I I gotta be clear. I don't. I don't really hate this book. I did kind of enjoy reading it. It, it, it for me, it functions more as a historical artifact of the golden age and of a certain kind of cold war optimism that Clark was defiantly carrying on even after a lot of people had abandoned it. Um, yeah. And obviously he was, he's getting lapped at this point. This book comes out by the new wave and he's saying, I will carry on as before. Thank you very much. So, Hey, if you like defiance in artists and doing their own thing, you might enjoy this. <laughs> I, Honestly, I I think that's a great way to say it, and it's probably a good place to leave it.